Old Testament <clears throat> scripture reading tonight comes from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 14, and Psalm 68, verses 5 through 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to, to these rules and keep, keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb. You shall be blessed above all peoples. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Let us pray. Set us free, O God, from the bondage of our sins, and give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, and there you will find our sermon text for the evening. And while you're looking for that or locating it in your worship order, I want to give what might appear to be a longer introduction than usual, but I believe necessary for what we are going to enter into tonight. We are in a mini-series on the Holy Trinity, one God and three persons, and we are exploring this in Ephesians chapter 1. Tonight, we're going to focus on the Father and His glorious grace. The glory of the Father's grace is revealed to us in two things that many people find to be disconcerting and, and difficult to get their hearts and minds around. The glory of the Father's grace is revealed to us in election and predestination in Christ. And so as we enter into this, I feel compelled to set forth a couple of caveats, a couple of warnings. Uh, As I've taken these warnings uh, into my own heart and mind, I want to convey them to you as well. Several years ago, uh, when I first started preaching these things, I knew that it was going to be difficult for some people to hear. 
And so what I tried to do is um, bring some levity, you know, diffuse the tension by presenting a comic strip from Calvin and Hobbes. And I failed tonight. I have the copies of them for you right here on the front row. If somebody wants to pass them out, that's fine. But uh, there's a comic strip that talks about the difficulty of getting your heart and mind around predestination versus fate and determinism. And I thought by sharing a, a comic strip with a congregation in those days that it would be uh, a way to help break the ice and make people feel better about what we were going to do. It turns out it did not go very well. It kind of fell flat and uh, the comic strip did not help very much. Calvin says about this issue of predestination that human curiosity renders the discussion of predestination already somewhat difficult of itself, very confusing and even dangerous. And then he goes on to point out that there are ditches on both sides of the road. On the one hand are those people who rush into the doctrine of predestination carelessly and recklessly. He says, if anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity and he will enter a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. On the other hand, are those people who avoid the doctrine of predestination as much as possible. And about those people, Calvin says, although their moderation is commendable in thinking that such mysteries should be treated with moderation, yet because they keep too far within the proper measure, they have little influence over the human mind. The danger which they dread is not so great that we ought, on account of it, turn away our minds from the oracles of God. Ditches on both sides of the road. People who rush into the doctrine of predestination without considering the ramifications. People who avoid it altogether because of their fear and perhaps even because of their feeling ashamed of the gospel. The Westminster Confession of Faith 3.8 gives us this caution. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. Now, since we know how mysterious and how controversial these two doctrines of election and predestination are, we might feel tempted. We might even wish to shrink away from these things. We might think that on a Sunday evening, when it's rainy and cold, that this is not really the thing that we need to address. Maybe we just want a warm hug and let's move on to something else. And to that, Calvin offers this special counsel, this pastoral counsel that I want to share with you. I find this to be very helpful. Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which as nothing that is useful and necessary to be known has been omitted. So nothing is taught but what is of importance to know. Therefore, everything delivered in Scripture on the subject of predestination, we must beware of keeping 
from the faithful, lest we seem either maliciously to deprive them of the blessing of God or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit as having divulged what ought on any account to be suppressed. In other words, we need to teach and preach whatever the Holy Spirit has revealed to us in the word of God. And we don't need to shy away from it. We don't need to be ashamed of it. But we do need to handle these things with special care. And so tonight, as we enter into this, focusing on the Father and His glorious grace, we're going to steer right into these two doctrines of election and predestination, but probably not in the way that you imagine. I don't want us to get lost in a maze, nor do I want us to bury our heads in the sand. I simply want to draw your attention to the glory of the Father's grace as it is revealed in Christ. That is, as it is revealed in election in Christ and predestination in Christ. And that brings us to our sermon text for the evening. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 6. The word of God reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add His blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of His word. And all the church says... As we saw last week, the first word in this section is the word blessed. Our word for eulogy is rooted and grounded in this word. And eulogy is about saying good things about others. In this case, it is about saying good things about God. It is praising God for His glorious grace. The Father is mentioned here as the source of all things from whom every name in heaven and on earth is named, as Paul says later in the letter. He is the shelter and the support around whom all things consist. He is over all and through all and in all. And so Paul begins this section and focusing on the father by describing the blessedness of the father who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Look at the word us there and just take a moment to consider what Paul means. I'm struck by Paul's direct language here. There's no mincing of words. There's no if, ands, or buts about what he says to the saints at Ephesus. And as I echo that to the saints here in Mesquite this evening. God the Father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And think about who the us is. Who are we if God has blessed us? 
We know that we're not a special elite class of people, but we're a sinful people just like everyone else. Paul describes us later on in his letter when he says we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so when Paul says to us, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. He's not singling us out as a special elite class of people, but simply saying to us that we are people Upon whom God set his love and affection, we are people like the rest of mankind who were children of wrath, sons of disobedience, and somehow God in his tender mercy brought us out of that. We'll see how in just a moment. But that's who we were. That's who we were. Those are the kinds of people that God the Father blesses with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so the elect are not this special class of people that have never been infected or affected by sin. No, they were people. We all were people who at one time were just as immersed and enmeshed in sin as anyone else happens to be. These are the people that God has blessed. And he does it in Christ. I'm going to save this for next week as we center on Christ. But suffice it to say for now that the father's election of sinners in Christ is truly personal and deeply relational. So rightly understood, the father's election of sinners in Christ removes any notion of cold blooded fatalism. It removes any notion of mechanistic determinism. In other words, this is a relational thing. The father has gone on mission seeking to save his children. He sent his son, Jesus, on mission to gather up those children that the father wanted to bring into his house. And this is what Christ has done. And in Christ, as we'll look at next week, every spiritual blessing has come. Now, I'm not going to tell you what those are yet, but Paul gives you that canopy statement, doesn't? Every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. Now, throughout this, Paul is dealing with the who, the what, the how, the where, the when, the why of what God is doing in his gracious work towards us. Notice that he says this. So, number one, the father has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. But look at number two. The father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. We'll talk about why in just a moment. But think about that for a moment. The father chose us. And again, I'm going to remind you of what it means. He chose us. Who were you when God chose you? What kind of person were you? What were you like? Did God choose you because he saw how cool you are? He saw how good you are. He saw how much you could contribute, what you were going to offer. Did he choose you because he saw something in you that attracted you to him? Not at all. No, Paul makes it very clear that the people that God the Father chose were the people who at one time were sons of disobedience 
They followed the spirit of the air, the power of the air. They followed the prince of this world. They were children of wrath. That's who we were. So when God elects people, he looks at this mass of humanity. He sees what a mess we are, what a massive train wreck humanity is. And then he elects people out of that train wreck. Not because they have so much to contribute to him or because they're inclined to love him, but because he is simply inclined to love them. We'll get to that in just a moment. The word chose here uh, can mean select, select. God is selecting people for himself. And when does he do this? While we were yet sinners. This is what some of the some of our forefathers like to call unconditional election, meaning that God chose a people without anything that he saw in them, good or bad, anything that uh, attracted him or made us look worthy or valuable to him. It's unconditional election. In other words, there were no conditions upon which God said, I will choose these people that meet this criteria. Now, the only thing you had to do is to be a sinner. Sinners are the only kind of people that God chooses to bring to himself. So if you're not a sinner, if you're a saint and you're righteous in and of yourself, probably not going to be chosen by God. Of course, that's no one except for Jesus, who was already the elect one. But the rest of us are in this trouble, aren't we? That we have nothing to bring, nothing to contribute, nothing to offer to God. And yet we are the ones that God has chosen and elected for himself. Now, Paul tells us why he's done this. It's not based on anything in us, but only on the pleasure and love of our triune Savior. God's elect people are nothing more than chosen sinners Sinners chosen by grace for salvation in Christ. But when did God do this? When did God make this selection? Paul tells us that he did it before the foundation of the world. Before the world was laid down. In eternity past. Before the beginning. Before God made the heavens and the earth. Before God created man in his image, male and female. Before then, God makes this determination. Now, if you want me to pause here and go off on a rabbit trail and try to explain the ins and outs of all of that, let me just put your mind at ease and say there's no possible way I could do it. If you gave me two hours the rest of this evening and into tomorrow, there's no possible way I could explain that. The mystery of God's providence in election is so vast That as Calvin said, if we were to trace it out, we'd probably get lost in a labyrinth out of which we would never escape. We would lose our way, lose our purpose because we would be so concerned about the hows God did this and why it works together that we would lose sight of the fact that it is God, our father, who has actually done this very gracious thing for us. So suffice it to say for now that God in the mystery of his plan and purpose did these things for us. But why did he do it? What did God have in mind for us when he chose us before the foundation of the world? I want to highlight for you that the passage says that God did this so that we should be holy and blameless before him. That we should be holy and blameless before his face in his presence. He chose us and brought us out of the world to himself, but he wants us to be changed, transformed. 
This whole notion of come as you are, do what you want, that doesn't exist. That's not the gospel. God brings us out of the world and begins to transform and reform us so that we can dwell before his face in his presence. Again, this isn't based on anything we've done, but it is the work of God. And this notion of holy and blameless is a is a fancier way to talk about sanctification, which is a work of God's free grace, whereby through the Holy Spirit and the word of God, God is working in us and for us and with us to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose of our life. And I want you to notice something here that contrary to what many critics will say about this doctrine of God's election of sinners. I want you to notice here that God's sovereignty and election does not eradicate or excuse any of our responsibility before God. In fact, God's sovereignty and election establishes our responsibility before God in sanctification. Later on in this letter, if we were to trace it all out, we'd get to Ephesians 5, for example. Paul will say, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetousness has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ. Now, I read all of that to simply remind you that God's sovereignty and election establishes our responsibility in sanctification. God chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. But what God is calling us to is a life of sanctification, a life where we are being set apart for his purposes and transformed into the image of Jesus. In other words, he's calling us to grow out of our sin into his righteousness. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we even hear that without holiness, no one will see God. Isaiah the prophet knew this. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is standing in the temple in the presence of God. And he hears the angelic voices singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. And it's in that moment as he stands in the presence of God before the face of God that he realizes what a sinful man he is. He realizes that he has not grown in holiness and blamelessness as he ought. And he cries out to God because he is a ruined man. And God has to come and in his mercy, he deals with Isaiah's sins. What do we learn from this? We learn that no one may stand in the presence of the most holy triune God unless his sins have been cleansed and purified. And this is not something that we may do in and of ourselves. It is something that God must do for us by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit and applying to us all of the benefits of Christ. 
And so we've seen that the Father blessed us in Christ. And we've seen that the Father chose us in Christ. And now we need to see that the Father predestined us in Christ. The word for predestined in Greek simply means something like this. It means to fore horizon. It means to set the boundary in advance. It means to establish a purpose, mark out a plan. This is what Paul is getting at. And you see this throughout his teaching and preaching ministry. I'll give you an example of this. When Paul is invited to speak to the philosophers on Mars Hill, he goes up and you would think that he would preach a more user-friendly, relevant message, right? Something that would be easier for his audience to hear, something that uh, wouldn't be so offensive. And yet he preaches this very thing at Mars Hill, but he uses different words, slightly different words. He says in the midst of that sermon, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He believed in the uh, historical Adam. He believed in the special creation of man made in the image of God. And then he goes on to say that God, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. When you see the word boundaries there, hear the word boundaries. That's the word for predestination without the prefix pre on it. Same word. God marked out the territories. He marked out the places in which he wanted people to live. Why? Because he's playful and he's playing hide and seek with his people. Only it's not hide and seek the way we imagine because here he doesn't make himself hard to find, does he? He's not playing hard to get with us. And that's what critics of predestination think God is doing. They think that if God has predestined some for salvation in Christ, then God is somehow playing hard to get or that he is chintzy with his grace and only going to Choose or predestine uh, a tiny little group of people. But that's not at all how Paul presents this. He says, no, God isn't the one playing hard to get. You are. You're the ones playing hard to get. We were playing hard to get. But God has done what he's done in your life and in the life of others by setting out the boundaries of our existence, by marking out horizons for us so that when we're there, we will perhaps reach out for him, grope around for him, feel around for him. And he lets us find him. He's not very hard to find. He's not far from each one of us. In him, we live and move and have our being. As some cultural poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Do you see how Paul is using these doctrines not to scare the church, not to make the church feel like we're some kind of elite group of people, but to humble us, to drive us to our faces, to our knees as we gather in the presence of God and know that he has taken us from a terrible life situation. We were sons of of disobedience. We were children of wrath. We were lost and groping in the world. We had no direction, no purpose. And yet God in his grace has interfered with our lives. He's interrupted our storyline and put us in a place where we can find him. 
And then Paul tells us why he did this. Calvin told us a lot of scary things about predestination. I want to, I want to tell you something that's not scary at all. Okay. He was concerned about the philosophical debates that were happening in his day. And maybe we should be as well, but that's not my concern tonight. I'm concerned with the pastoral applications of this for your sake. And here's how you can find great comfort in this doctrine. Paul makes it clear. Paul makes it clear that the Father predestined us with this in mind. Here's why. For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. For adoption to himself as sons in Jesus Christ. All the commentaries I read, the the work I did this week, point to the fact that this word adoption is unique to Paul. Because he took a couple of words and mashed them together so that it it would say something like this. It would be terrible to translate it like this. But so that uh, sunset, S-O-N-E-S-E-T, sunset, so that you're set as a son in the family of God. So that you are placed as an heir in the family of God. That's what Paul is getting at. That is why God predestined you in Christ is to make you a son or a daughter in his family, to adopt you into his family. Now, I want to make a distinction here and be very clear about something. There are Christians around the world who have very different view of this. And I think that there are many Christians. And again, they mean well, but they misunderstand what's happening here. And here's the, the outcome of different kinds of teaching that I've come across. From my previous experience and to what I know of others around me. We can say that many evangelicals and many Catholics, technically we'd say Arminians and semi-Pelagians, if you know what that means. But many evangelicals and many Catholics misunderstand the Father's gracious act of adoption here. They treat it more like a foster care program than a legal, covenantal, evangelical adoption. There is a real difference. And this robs God's people of assurance and confidence before the face of God. You see, on those other views, the father welcomes children of wrath into his home one day, but then he sends them away the next. They don't get to permanently abide in the family. They never become his sons and daughters. They are not his children on their view. But on Paul's view, on the view of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, the father welcomes children of wrath into his family and they become his sons and daughters by grace through faith in love. You have become permanent members of God's family, his sons, his daughters, brothers and sisters with Jesus Christ. And there's a formal adoption ceremony that comes along with this. And it's called Christian baptism. Baptism, the adoption ceremony of the Christian in which God brings us out of the world into the church. In which he takes children of wrath and makes them children of mercy. In which he puts his name on his children. He has written his name on you, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, 
Thus, God becomes the father of the fatherless and he settles the solitary in his holy habitation, his home, his family. And why does he do this? Paul says he does it according to the purpose of his will. I enjoy reading the NIV and I'm not a Greek scholar. But they really didn't help us out here. The word purpose should read good pleasure. And so if you're the kind of person that writes in your Bible, make a note of that. His good pleasure. Good pleasure. God the Father desires children. And He delights to adopt them into His family. And He does it for His good pleasure. He gets a kick out of it. It's thrilling to Him. It brings Him praise. It brings Him glory and honor. He loves the fact that children are coming into His family through the person and work of Jesus Christ and by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit. He's watching His family grow and flourish. And this delights Him. And he does all of this to the praise of his glorious grace. Jonathan Edwards asked the question, what is the end for which the what is the end for which God does anything that he does? And the answer is he does it for the praise of his glorious grace. And it is the praise of God's glorious grace that is the proper response to the father's grace and love towards us. And speaking of love, I want to circle back into the text and confess to you that I purposefully left out that little phrase in love so that we could come to it at this point. Paul says that everything the father purposed and planned, everything that gives the father good pleasure, everything he's done for his sons and daughters, everything he is pleased to do for them is based on his own divine love for them. As we summarize the the text and summarize the sermon and say the father blessed us, the father chose us, the father predestined us, the father adopted us. We must not forget to tack on this all important truth that he did it in love. And this is not just some abstract ethereal love, but this is love incarnate, love embodied in Jesus Christ, who is called here the beloved one. And now we come to the crux of the matter. I said to you last week that I'm going to remind you of the same thing every week for the next few weeks. And this is it. What do we learn from this exploration into the father's glorious grace? We learn that the Father loves you and Jesus is on your side and the Holy Spirit is for you and God is relentless in his pursuit of you. And this should drive us to our faces in the praise and adoration of God, our Father, who has spared no expense in bringing us to himself and making a part of his family. You belong in the family of God because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Let us fall down before the majesty of our good God in prayer. O God, Father of glory, I give you thanks for Christ's covenant church. 
And I pray that you may give us all the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Father God, that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you have called us, that we may know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and that we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your great might, that you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Amen.